Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is the word of God. Let me have my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar. And we have another difficult passage to look at this morning. Uh, None of us enjoy being uh, told that there might be a problem. Uh, But the wonderful thing is the God who tells us that also tells us that he has provided the solution. So I hope we would rather hear truth than stay blind. Let's pray for God's help as we do. Father God, please, would you open our eyes to your truth? Would you give us humility to recognise where we might be in error? And our Father, we pray most of all that you would help us to see why understanding our sin is a good thing, for it helps us see more clearly our Saviour Jesus. Amen. Now, Romans 1, if you were here last week, it, uh, it confronted us with the rather sobering truth that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. To put it bluntly, God is going to judge all the wickedness he sees going on in the world. Now, how should we respond to that? Well, we should respond by falling on our knees, by saying sorry to God, by turning back to him and by begging for forgiveness. But there is an instinct deep in every human heart that just reacts violently against ever admitting I'm wrong. Instead, we uh, we seek to avoid or deny. And when we can't avoid or deny, well, we defend or we excuse. 
As soon as children learn to speak, they're making excuses. It's just natural to them. It wasn't me. I saw you do it. It was an accident. You looked at him and then punched him in the face. Well, he broke my toy, which is much worse. It's just hardwired into it. I think I was looking up uh, excuses. I think the best excuse I've ever heard was uh, one submitted by a teacher this week who said a boy had come in late for a lesson after lunch. Why are you late for this lesson? Well, I was going to be here on time, but I bumped into another pupil who said you were not the very best teacher in the entire world, and so I had to stop and take time to fight them. (laughs) Actually, there really are only two kinds of excuses when you think about it. There are convincing excuses and there are unconvincing excuses. Now, convincing excuses, they're the ones I make. They're not really excuses, actually. They're more uh, explanations. Whereas unconvincing excuses, yeah, they're the ones you make when you're speaking to me. Now, look, Paul's particular aim in chapter 2 is is to show it's not just the pagans we were hearing about in Romans 1 who are going to be condemned by God. God is also going to judge religious people, even Jewish people. And as he teaches that, in effect, he works through three very common excuses that we still make today when we hear about God's judgment. But I'm not as bad as him or her or them. Look, sure, you'll cut me some slack. I mean, after all, we are family. And I I just didn't realise it was wrong. Let's see how those three excuses get dealt with in this passage. Firstly, verses 1 to 5, when I judge others, I condemn myself. So as Paul has finished writing Romans 1, he imagines as he turns to chapter 2, some people responding in precisely the wrong way to what he's just taught in Romans 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. He's denounced the the kind of tabloid scandal sins of the pagan Greco-Roman world. And frankly, as we saw, condemned compared to what was seen as healthy and normal back then. Love Island is Victorian in its sexual ethics. And so he condemned them. But he can imagine that those particular behaviours would be pretty appalling to someone especially raised in a strictly Jewish community. But the conclusion that he's aiming at in 3.20 is not all those people who are not Jewish really, really need a saviour, Jesus. But all humans, no matter their religion, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their cultural background, all humans need the saviour, Jesus. And so he turns to address the Jewish people in chapter 2. Now, the the word uh, Jew doesn't actually appear until verse 17. But the use of we in verse 2 and the discussion of the law in verses 12 to 16... They they show us that that's who he's addressing. Now, this is not anti-Semitism. He's not singling out those Jewish as particularly wicked people. He himself is a Jew. His point is not the Jews are worse. His point is all people are sinners before God, even, even his people from the Old Testament, the Jewish people. At which point you might think, okay, so these verses are incredibly relevant to those amongst us who are from a Jewish background. Actually, They're relevant to all of us. Because the reason that he addresses Jewish people in chapter 2 is not an ethnic reason, but a religious one. See, his point is, 
that the Jewish people might view themselves as not falling under God's wrath because actually they're as appalled as God is by the behaviour that was described in chapter 1. And, you know, after all, they are God's people. And so what he is saying is, look, be careful, you who are religious. Be careful, you who are appalled by the sins exposed in chapter 1. Don't think you have nothing to worry about on Judgment Day just because you agree those sins were bad and because you think, well, we're God's people. Romans 2 says all people, even religious people, even people who, who don't indulge in the swipe right, binge drinking, tabloid sins of pagan culture, everybody will face God's judgment. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, Paul tells us immediately when you get into to chapter 2. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? You're right to pass judgment on pagan behaviour. It really is wicked. But don't you realise when you do so, you're condemning yourself as well? Why? Well, because you do the same things. You're a sinner too, verse 1. Hypocrisy is, well, it's one of the commonest human sins, but it is also one of the ugliest. Now, this is um, Extinction Rebellion, and insulate Britain protester Cameron preparing to block uh, wicked petrol-driving uh, planet-destroying people like you and me from getting to a petrol station filling up. You can see that from the yellow tape. A very noble man who loves the environment accepted emerged last week that shortly before gluing himself to a motorway to stop anybody else destroying the planet by driving a car, he'd travelled 10,000 miles on a world tour by plane and diesel van to enjoy looking around Canada and then touring around Europe. Oh, uh, a bit hypocritical. And let's be honest, there are a few things more enjoyable than seeing self-righteous, let-me-tell-you-how-to-live types exposed as hypocrites. It's just delicious. Of course, there are a few things less enjoyable than having my own hypocrisy exposed. And all of us, actually, all of us are hypocrites in different ways, and we realise that when we read about God's judgment of others. Now, we may denounce cronyism and corruption and and be contemptuous of the old boys network that looks after its own in politics where you get ahead by who you know and, and then we pull every string to get our children into the school we desperately want. We support anti-trafficking organisations. Modern slavery is a wicked, wicked sin and then, and then we watch porn that is created through sex slavery. We judge our consumerist greedy city but we long for the same holidays and we pursue the same goals with our careers we condemn the the sex obsessed debauched culture that glorifies sex everywhere and then and then we watch all manner of gratuitous sex world shows on netflix the truth is all of us all of us are a little bit more hypocritical than we like to admit But I think Paul's point is actually a little bit broader. It's not just that we commit exactly the same sins, 
but that we sin too. We sin too. I don't think he's saying you have to commit exactly the same ones, but that we too are sinners. Now, one of the, the less enjoyable books I've read in the last few years is Jerry Bridges' Respectable Sins. His point is very, very uncomfortable. His point is that as Christians, as church-going people, we can loudly condemn the tabloid sins of our culture while giving us ourselves a pass for all manner of other sins, which God condemns with equal force in his word. I think that's particularly true of the, the less outwardly scandalous sins. But God's word condemns proud self-righteousness as loudly as adultery. God is angered by greedy materialism as well as drunken brawling. God is disgusted by a hard-hearted indifference to the poor as well as by idolatry. See, the problem is your heart, my heart. In here, there is pride, selfishness, greed, anger, indifference, deceit, all manner of hidden, not very visible in public sins. And God is angered by the sins we indulge as much as he's angered by the sins we condemn committed by people out there. Now verses 4 to 5 move on to another reason why we might be tempted to think our sins just don't matter that much. And that is, well, God doesn't seem to mind them too much, does he? I mean, verse 4, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We pass on that delicious bit of gossip. We tell a blatant lie to cover ourselves and nothing. No lightning bolt. God doesn't seem to mind at all. I mean, Life carries on. Okay, maybe God isn't so fussed by those things. I mean, surely if God disliked the way I was living, he'd do something about it. You know, I'd lose my job or, or get long-term sick or something. But that's a terrible misunderstanding to think like that. First, because suffering in this life rarely, rarely has anything to do with sin. The godliest people often seem to suffer the most. But also the point of God not destroying us immediately for our sin and instead handing us over, as we heard in chapter 1, to continue in it, is not to show he approves of it, but to give us time, verse 4, to give us time to repent, time to turn back. But if we do carry on sinning, the day will come when God's patience finally runs out, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Isn't that terrifying? Judgment day for those who do not turn back to God and seek forgiveness is described as the day of wrath. Look, to put it bluntly, these verses explain why the terrorist who murdered Sir David Ames is a big danger to you and me right now. I mean, not physically. He's locked up. He'll, I guess he'll never be released into public again. He's a big danger spiritually, not physically. Because terrorists, paedophiles, whoever, they commit sins most of us would never dream of committing. 
And so we can feel that we stand on the opposite side morally from them. They're bad. I'm not like them. Therefore, I must be good. And that gap blinds me to the fact that while I may not stand with him in his particular sin, I do stand in my own sin. I'm not on the same side as God morally. Uh, to put it bluntly, if, if I hear about God's judgment and respond, well, hey, look, it's not like I'm a terrorist and it's not like I'm killing people. God will respond, I'm not going to punish you for killing people. But you're so busy condemning the sins of others that you seem very blind to the sins that you're committing. And I am going to punish you for them. You've lost sight of your greed, your anger, your indifference, your selfishness. And they are abhorrent. And I have to punish them. But I'm not as bad as them. It is no use as an excuse when God says no. But you do need to answer for your sins. Secondly, God will judge everyone in the same way. Now, verses 6 to 11 really demonstrate the judgment of God will be just. The verses that bracket the section, if you look at it, you'll see that they show that is the case. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they've done. And then verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. But just as important as understanding the fact that God is fair, that will be demonstrated in these verses, is why does Paul argue that here? And there is a second reason, you see, that uh, Jewish people in particular might have thought they'd be okay on Judgment Day, and that is they were God's chosen people. Of all the nations in the world, he rescued them from slavery in Egypt to be his people. I read an extraordinary story this week. Katrina Brownlee, uh, who uh, just retired as as a cop in New York from just the most unimaginable background. She was a single mum in an abusive relationship. Her boyfriend, Irvin, eventually shot her 10 times while she was pregnant with his child, who died. Uh, she, now, he should have been locked up years and years earlier because she'd called the police on his abuse numerous times when he'd beaten her up. But despite the black eyes and the bleeding lips, the police always turned around once they arrived at the apartment as soon as he flashed his own badge. He was a prison guard. So he got away with it. It's absolutely appalling. But it's how things are in this world. There's the Masonic handshake and the old school tie. One rule for those who've got the same skin colour as me and another for those who don't. We're appalled by it, but it is easy to assume that come Judgment Day, God will just treat his people a little bit differently. I mean, surely the descendants of Abraham, his, his chosen people, the Jewish nation, can expect that come Judgment Day, God will just go a bit easy on them. Oh, you're right, we are family. Well, not according to Romans 2. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. Now, there is a big debate over whether verses uh, 7 to 10 are about a hypothetical group of people who don't exist or about Gentile Christians. 
So who is this group who persistently seek glory, honour and immortality and are rewarded with eternal life? Is it hypothetical? Is Paul saying, look, God is just and fair. If anybody lived a righteous, virtuous life, then God would reward them with eternal life, but no one does. Or is he saying, look, God is just and fair. So when you see Gentile people who are not descended from Abraham, but who through trust in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit are living righteous lives, that should make you realise. Don't expect that just because you've got a Jewish heritage that you'll be fine on judgment day when the evidence of your life is that you're just not living rightly before God. Look, the truth is, scholars divide, it's difficult to work out. Either way, either way, I think Paul's ultimate point is the same. God does not show favouritism. He will judge all people, verse 6, according to what they've done. He's warning us, religious backgrounds, skin colour, political affiliations, wealth, class, family, none of it will protect you on judgment day. Now, of course, if God doesn't show favouritism on judgment day, that means he won't ignore my sins either, will he? All sin's got to be punished if God is just. No sin must be ignored. And so the only hope is not who I am or who I know. The only hope is that someone has taken my punishment for me, Jesus. Let me tell you two statements that are actually very different. I'll be okay on judgment day because I'm a Christian. I'll be okay on judgment day because Jesus died for me. Actually, there's all the difference in the world between those two statements. The first, I'll be okay on Judgment Day because I'm a Christian, so easily slips into superiority to thinking I'm part of a special category of people, Christians, who God gives a pass to because we're kind of his people. The second recognises, no, God is just and will punish all sins. I'll be okay only because Jesus died. And that leads to humility and thankfulness as I recognise all sin will be punished, but Jesus came and took my sin. Now, look, before we move on, I hope you can see that as well as being a sober warning that my sins won't be ignored, this is also very good news. This is very good news in a world where too often people do get away with it because of family connections or wealth or power or because they're part of the dominant culture. One day, we will all face a judge who doesn't care about our connections, only our actions. And when we've seen justice denied in this world, that is very good news. But God will judge everyone the same way. No one gets to say, we're family, surely you'll treat me different. Lastly, thirdly, God will judge everyone differently. God will judge everyone the same way, verses 6 to 11. And now, uh, verses 12 to 16, God will judge everyone differently. Sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. It's just a different aspect of God's justice. So verses 6 to 11 stressed, God won't let anyone get away with it on judgment day. Verses 12 to 16 explain, we won't be judged for what we didn't know. The excuse that's skewered here is, look, I just didn't realise what I was doing was wrong. Now, the principle is stated clearly in verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, if you're a Roman toga salesman who has never heard 
the law of Moses. You're not going to be condemned because you failed to keep the Ten Commandments. The sting for the Jewish reader comes in verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, Paul is going to return to this theme in verse 17 and for the rest of chapter 2 next week. But before he does, he explains why it is that our Roman toga salesman can't claim, look, I just didn't realize it was wrong. Actually, it's a question lots of us ask, possibly not on behalf of Roman toga salesmen, but how can God condemn people who don't have a Bible? How can God condemn people for for disobeying him who don't even know who he is, who've never heard of Jesus? How can he judge a Hindu for sinning if they don't know what sin is from the Bible? The answer in verses 14 to 15 is that while they may not know God's capital L law, the Bible, their own conscience is God's law written on our hearts. Verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Now, of course, Different societies do have different laws. And it's no surprise, given what we saw in chapter 1, that one of the biggest areas of divergence is on sexual ethics. That's the, the point at which, one of the points at which we most furiously push back against God. But actually, there is remarkable consistency across history and societies. No culture has ever commended theft and murder of their own. <laughs> Other people, maybe, but not of their own. And actually, this point that there is a consistency, it's recognized by all of us. We may think, oh, look, actually, everybody's got different laws. But but when push comes to shove, we don't really think that. That's the foundational principle of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. We can have a United Nations Declaration of Universal Human Rights because, well, there's basic agreement among all peoples, all societies, all races of how we should treat one another. Our consciences, they didn't get there by accident. They're God's law written on our hearts, something that we recognize. And when we do wrong, verse 15, we feel guilt or shame. And when we do right, we feel good and at peace with ourselves. Of course, the problem is that even when judged by what we do know, all of us fall far, far, far short of how we should live. Chapter 1, we suppress the knowledge of God and we do things we know deep down to be wrong again and again and again. And one day all of this will be revealed. Verse 16, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So in the first half of chapter 2, another exit is closed as the conveyor belt of history moves inexorably towards the searching pure fire of God's judgment. The escape routes all are being closed off. Locked doors. The excuses exposed. And the particular role of Romans 2 is to tell us that even good moral people, even religious people, even church-attending people, will face God's judgment. It doesn't matter that I'm not as wicked as those Taliban or lying politicians or whoever. 
if God will judge the tabloid sins that I think are wrong, then I can be sure that as well as judging the sins out there, he will judge the sins in here and in here. It doesn't matter that I come to church and have a Bible and call myself a Christian. God will judge every sin. It doesn't matter whether I know whole books of the Bible off by heart or have never even heard of Jesus. None of us can claim that we've done what we know to be right. The only hope, the only hope any of us have is for someone to come and take the punishment I rightly deserve. For Jesus to die on the cross. Now the stars at night are stunningly beautiful. They're breathtaking. But we just can't see them in London because the light pollution in the sky means... Well, the sky above just doesn't look very dark, and so the stars don't stand out very bright. And Jesus' death on the cross is the most stunningly, breathtakingly beautiful act in all of history. The perfect Son of God becoming a human being to voluntarily die so that we could be forgiven. And against the terrible darkness of our sins, it shines with brilliance of a billion stars dazzling with hope and light and life. But our attempts to minimise our sins, our excuses that we make, they, uh, we, we soften the darkness. They're like light pollution as we point the finger at others and claim they're worse. It fools us into thinking, actually, our sins aren't very dark, really. It's, it's pretty bright. You know, my life looks pretty good. It's like light pollution. And as well as making me think maybe I'm not quite so bad, it blinds me to the beauty of Jesus' death for me. But when I look honestly at my sin and then look at the cross, then I see again how beautiful God's work of salvation is. How glorious, how kind, how loving is our God. What relief, what comfort, what joy that he would send his son to die for me. Okay, practically, what do you do with Romans 2? Practically, very simply, stop the excuses and repent each day. Or if you've never done that, repent for the first time. Turn back to God. Stop the excuses. Say sorry to God and ask for forgiveness. Allow God's word to expose the ugly, inky darkness of your sin. Pray each day that as you read the Bible, God's spirit would expose hidden sins because the deeper the understanding of sin we have, the more we will thirst for forgiveness. The more we will be amazed that God is merciful, God is compassionate, God is gracious. And so he calls us when we're burdened with sin to come to him, not to come to him with our excuses, but to come to him with our need. And when we do that, we find he is a God of love and kindness. We find that he's promised to wash our sins as white as snow. We find that he's come to help us repent, to help us change. Turn back to him and cling to him each day. Turn off the excuses. Look at the inky darkness of sin. And see again how beautiful the Saviour Jesus is. And repent, repent, for there is forgiveness in him. Our Father God, uh, 
It's not an enjoyable thing to read that you punish the sins of religious people when we were gathering here in church of religious people. But our Father, thank you that you tell us that so that we would not fool ourselves and so arrive at judgment day unprepared. You tell us that so that we would fall on our knees and as we do so, we would find forgiveness. You tell us that so that we would discover just how loving and merciful you are. Help us, we pray, to do that, to repent each day to the God who forgives every sinner, every sin. Amen.